0: Have you ever considered what makes a brand successful? How one brand supersedes another in the hospitality landscape? Well, it's never a coincidence. It's always a product of well thought out branding strategy that captures the essence of your story. That's why principal design is making brands happen in cafes, restaurants, bars, and venues by crafting experiences that gives customers a reason to choose you. They are raising the standard of our industry and helping venues realize that strong brand presence is the key that unlocks all the good stuff like increased full traffic, higher engagement and overall happy customers. Branding ultimately becomes the face that engages your audience, delights them at every moment of their dining experience and eventually earns their loyalty. Because you're part of the PO community, we'd love to help you kickstart your brand journey. For a limited time only, Principal Design is offering free strategy sessions for our listeners. So jump over to the bio in the podcast description and book your time slot. Welcome to another Principle of Hospitality podcast. I'm your host, Sean DeVries. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode. Principle of Hospitality has been developed to tell the stories of the professionals within the dynamic world of hospitality. We're straight-talking, ethically-minded, and a reliable online source of information and inspiration for people in the hospitality industry. Now with today's podcast, founded in 1927 by Giuseppe and Bruno Bambi, La Mozzocco had its beginnings in Florence, Italy. It is one of the world's most well-known coffee machine brands and sets itself apart from being innovative, stylish, and having a lovely powerful machine. Even today, highly specialized personnel supervise every stage of the production process of every single machine, handcrafted to order for each and every client. So I feel really fortunate to sit down with the Group Marketing Manager of Lama Zocca Australia, Jet Langlands. Hey Jets, how are you?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty good, thanks. How, are you, how about yourself?
0: I am fantastic. Thank you for asking. <laughs> I appreciate it. You're welcome. Now, obviously everyone knows you in the coffee industry, right? Um, we can see that obviously by being here at WorkSmith today and like the love that's in the room for people, uh, for a person like yourself in the coffee industry. Let's talk about how you started out in the coffee industry and what made you... Love it so much.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, That's super flattering too. The people out there are people that I consider incredible peers, if not mentors. So I feel pretty special being welcomed like I was today. (laughs) So thank you to them. Starting out, I guess I worked in hospitality like any teenager, working in my local restaurant. I come from a very small town of like 3,000 people and there was a restaurant that had a coffee machine out the back where most restaurants used to have them. Mm. In the service area, you'd make an espresso for someone at the end of the, of the meal. Moving into uni and moving down to Wellington, I moved into a specialty coffee chain for bagel shops, but they used Coffee Supreme. Okay. So I ended up doing professional training under them. Moved to Germany after my degree and came back and sort of called the crew at Coffee Supreme and were like, hey, I desperately need a job to pay off this credit card debt. So I was living in Germany for a while (laughs) off the back of not my own money. (laughs) And they said, yeah, sure. Actually, we've we've got a training role going. I ended up working in coffee training for them, then doing sales. The story goes on. Do you want me to continue in that story? Please. (laughs) 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 Moved to Melbourne in um, 2007, which I guess to me was the beginning of specialty coffee in Melbourne. Sort of Mm. that move where um, Mark Dundon had... St. Ali. Mm-hmm. Um, Nolan was pretty, pretty close to opening Proud Mary at that time and I was very close friends with him. Mm. Um, happened to walk in the door found on the deep dark corners of the internet in 2007 pre-Facebook <laughs> that St. Ali was a place, walked in, got a job and then sort of proceeded to move through the ranks, I was the first barista at Brother Budan. did training for St. Ali, then moved into a role with All Press doing sales and training, bit wow. of tech work. Ended up getting transferred to London to help open All Press in London. So helped open the Melbourne office, then helped open London. And then got called back by Nolan to help run the cafe and the roastery over here for Proud Mary. While I was in London, though, I'd made a really good connection with the guys at La that They're obviously really close to Italy had a really strong relationship with All Press, All Press were the distributors of Lamazoco at the time. So I'd built this relationship with who are now the owners of the Lamazoco branch in um, Italy and have ties to our office here in Australia. And they contacted me about a year or two after I got back from Australia, from London and was living in Australia and sort of said if you wanted to move across to Lamazoco, we'd want to do that for you. So I ended up moving into sales for them which is pretty special and from that ended up meeting most of the roasters around Australia just Mm. through the fact that people bought our coffee machines, travelled a lot and found that I was probably more interested not in the actual physical sale of the machine, but the brand, what made people want to buy our product, what made the industry tick, what people were interested in. And I think that comes from being a barista first and foremost, travelling through that training route. And the reason I got into training was I wanted to know why the machine or why the coffee did things. So then to ne- then understand the psychology of why people did things around coffee, why people make those purchasing decisions was kind of where I started steering. And mm. now I ended up in marketing for like four brands, four La Mazzocca. So <laughs> it's a bit of a journey. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was condensed from 13 to 41 in a short amount of time. But mm. yeah, it's been a been a journey. But coffee's kind of woven it right the way through. It wasn't what I studied, obviously, mm. marketing or anything. I should be working for local government and environmental legislation. But wow, here we are. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's kind of the same, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what makes you actually love coffee? Like, was there a... Because I imagine, like, with all that back history you just went through, like, you could be doing any part in hospitality you want because, obviously, you're, you're so highly skilled. What makes you actually like cafes and the coffee industry above anything else in hospital?
1: Um, it's funny. just ran into... Um, Emma out the front, who works in the booze industry, my brother actually works in craft beer for Moondog, Mm. does international exports, but now runs, was doing international exports, now runs sales team up there. I was really close to the cocktail scene when I moved to Melbourne as well. I find, what I found was I enjoy drinking. (laughs) I enjoy the (laughs) culture around restaurants, bars, things like that. But I didn't, even though I'm a night owl, I, I kind of wanted to live in that daytime side of things. And I think... In the early 2000s, there still was a lot of um, stuff going on around women in industry and things like that. And it wasn't super comfortable late at night in certain things. And I think coffee for me was a safe space to be super social, to share stories with people, but without getting booze involved and sort of just getting to that seedy side of Mm. the industry. Do you know what I mean? And I think... Yeah, I like to say that we've come leaps and bounds. I still think there's a lot of improvement to be made in safety for women in the industry. But for me, I felt like there was opportunity to grow and not be put somewhere just to be the token female. Yeah. That, does that make yeah,
0: sense?
1: Yeah, it does. Yeah, so and coffee, I think also, um, not many people know this, but you know the Lene de vin, the, the sense of wine that sommeliers study? Mm-hmm. Um, on a more softer note than the darker side I just went down. <laughs> um, I think coffee has four times the sensory so, um, num- number of sensory um, bottles and smells that wine does. Mm-hmm. So there's so much more to learn too, and I think that's what interested me with cocktails, was mm. there was a whole world you could go into. Coffee, there was a whole world you could go into. Obviously wine is, but I think coffee just it fascinated me because I hadn't heard so much about it living in that sort of foodie, nerdy hospo world yeah and it's like i just wanted to dig a bit deeper mm. ended up doing lectures with the guys at black pearl way back in the day when they were sort of starting to enter comps and stuff mm-hmm. about coffee and how it could be included in cocktails so yeah i don't know it just it fascinated me i wanted to know more and i also wanted to encourage or br- bring more women into coffee but also encourage people to sort of women to push harder mm. and go further in coffee because all i ever came up against was men
0: do you mind if we go a bit deeper with that? Is yeah, that okay? Yeah, for sure. What do you think we need to do as an industry around the safety of women to, in the future to make sure that, like, obviously, I'm happy to hear that coffee is a safe mm-hmm. and cafes are a safer space for well, women? At times. At times. <laughs> But we, um, we've talked about it, I've talked about it for a couple of years now with different people on different podcasts mm. um, and other series that we've done around, you know, the safety of women in the industry. Yeah. What, what do we need to do better? Because most of the people who make the decisions in the industry still are people that look like me.
1: I know, and I, I try to, like, I'm always saying let's try and steer away from just the white man. I just mm. had a son who's a who's a white man. <laughs> so um, I think I don't have any problem with white men. I like white men. I like men in general. Mm. But I think there's something about, we were just talking about doing a marketing campaign just recently and we're like, the people that you see represented don't actually accurately represent the life around you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if you walk out the door today on Smith Street, the different lifestyles, cultures, people that you walk up and see do not represent the advertising or the industry leadership that you see today. Mm-hmm. That's what we need to change. And I think that's still something that's really challenging. Mm. Um, like La we're challenged at that. There's no women in the leadership team globally. Um, or just, you know, like the managing directors of the branches. But they are working actively on that. But working actively on it and then seeing representation is a different thing. And I think... I don't wanna to be too dark about the bar industry. I just think that there's when there's booze involved and it's late night, it's just that little bit harder to keep a bit safer. But there's a few um, coffee communities. There's something called the Take Back Coffee, which just got launched on Instagram like last week by Demelza at Same Cup. And that's talking about diversity, but also people sharing their stories mm. about things that have happened to them in the coffee industry. Mm. You know, and being held back because they were females or made to feel uncomfortable. Even just customers making comments and things like, I don't know what we can do to change it. I think that's such a large question, but trying to have that representation of our community in our leadership teams and our sort of social, in our workplaces as well as on our walking down the road Mm. or the people that walk at the door is a big change. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I don't... I don't know how to change. I think talking about it is super important, which mm. is I don't know. I wasn't expecting to come in and talk about that, but it did <laughs> jump to mind and I think mm. that's that was for a reason. It was pretty uncomfortable in the early 2000s in Melbourne in hospitality. Why? Not going to lie. Um just the way women were talked to, the way that people were, you know, like we were put into certain roles, we were mm-hmm. Sweetie, darling, things like that. Like yeah, things that right. you would not say these days. Yeah. Like it feels like it wasn't that long ago. Like mm. I moved here 15 years ago. Yeah. But that was a lifetime ago in the way that people speak to women in a workplace. So it's already shifting in a really great way. Yeah. And I think, I think it's the same for young men that are starting out as well. Yeah, I agree. You know, like being talked down to, that real sort of hierarchical thing needs to be ripped out of the heart of it and people just need to be... Encouraged to foster what they're enthusiastic about,
0: because mm. I feel like we're having a moment. Obviously, with so many jobs that are wanting at the moment in the hospitality industry, It's
2: terrifying. And I'm
0: <laughs> obviously I, you know, um, do a bit of recruitment and I talk with a lot of companies about recruitment um, and people development and stuff like that. And I still feel like there's this this thought that it should go back to what it was three years ago, and is a single swing mentality with training and there's And we should just, you know, recruit the same way we were recruiting before and why don't people want to work for us? But there's an understanding that people don't want to work for an old system of what hospitality was. And it took a pandemic for them to realise that. And this is going through many different industries, but I think the hospitality one being such an emotional one Mm -hmm. in which you're riding a wave of service and dealing with, you know, different people that you, you know, um, come into your life through a workplace and all those kind of things. Like they're challenging fucking environments.
1: 100%. I just,
0: I just wonder how we get to a point where the hospitality industry is a safe place for people to work, that people want to feel encouraged to come back, that they want to give a life of service, which is what the hospitality industry is. Mm-hmm. It is a life of service. And actually make the generation of like 18 to 30 year olds actually want to come back and enjoy yeah, it.
1: I think it's, I, I remember moving here from New Zealand and being like, wow, working in hospitality is a career in that. There was not that in New Zealand. It was, you do that until you finish your degree and then you get a real job. Yeah. Moving here, I was like, oh, there are people who are per- per- career waiters, career bartenders, you know, like I, I was exposed to that. So there was already that there. Uh, a lot of it come, you know, like I'm a New Zealander. I just became an Australian citizen during the pandemic so that my son could be an Australian. I was p- pretty happy. I'm very proud. One of my big things was just being able to vote mm. to affect change after 15 years. It's really mm. hard. Mm. Um, but one of those things was in during the pandemic, the government didn't support anyone that was a New Zealander that didn't have a long-term role with someone. So yep. we lost a lot of that, those people there. We lost all those international students. That support for those people that keep the industry running, is just so lacking and so over, but then we are the first to say Melbourne's the leader in coffee, Melbourne's the leader in hospitality. Yeah. If I just look at our state, but nationally, that's on the big billboards for tourism to come to Australia and experience food, wine, coffee.
3: Mm.
1: But the investment in the in the development, you know, like those the TAFE the TAFE courses are severely lacking. Yeah. In actual tangible real life work experience, I mm. think. You know, learning to make a coffee, but also learning where coffee comes from. Learning about the roasting. There's some incredible heritage roasters in Australia. Like, hanging out with the guys from Griffiths at, at Mice, and they've been there since the 1880s. Wow. Their brand's older than us. They've got, like, these amazing billboards for like coffee in the 1880s you know mm. and then we've got the guys the italian tech companies genovese mm. dimatina mockapan they all launched in the 1950s mm. but we're not talking about this amazing heritage we've got in our own backyard mm. and encouraging people to enter that as a career mm-hmm. it's still that sort of generic going into those the financial roles you know like go, go and become an accountant go and become a builder Go and be a doctor because you're going to make money. Why can't we look at those and and start – I think I paid $3 for a coffee when I moved to Melbourne in 2007. Yeah. Now maybe I'm paying $5, Mm. but everything else, my rent has doubled. Yes. (laughs) Yes, 100%. (laughs) Right? Like why why aren't we paying for the experiences we're having but people will kick off. If people raise their prices or there's a surcharge on a Saturday, people Mm. are really upset about it. It's Mm. just there's a disparity between what people expect to be given and what they're willing to pay. Mm. And I think that will always hinder the development of hospitality as a profession for life if that money's not in there because people want want to be successful. They want to build a life for themselves, for their family, and they can't often do that in hospitality unless they start their own business. But then again the training lacks, how are we supporting those people in how to build a successful business, how to be, you know, successful. Yeah. I don't know. Opening big cans of worms. We, aren't <laughs> we? <laughs> <laughs> we haven't even
0: <laughs> said love of yet, <laughs> have we? Um, I think it's interesting, right, because, like, especially in a super competitive environment like Melbourne and Sydney mm. in which you have such great hospitality venues from Incredible. corner to corner – then all of a sudden it's – because you have so many great venues by way of experience and people, then you start to compete on price, which means that over a period of time, if those venues are still there um, but the population doesn't grow to support more growth, then all of a sudden the needle doesn't move on price point. Mm -mm. So that's why, you know, you're going from $3 to $5 in 15 to 20 years. Which is insane. You know, and something's got to give, right? And I think we're starting to see the early signs well, of that across the industry.
1: hundred percent. And I think we, like like I was saying, you know, we'll train people at TAFE for how to make a coffee. But where does that coffee come from? Mm. There's, you know, there's massive supply chain issues for everyone. We all know that. You order a couch, it takes two years to come. Yes. But coffee beans are a farmed commodity that needs to get somewhere in a short amount of time. Yeah. And this disease was ripping through the, those nations, the developing nations, the ports, um, trying to get that coffee here, and then expecting that price to stay stable. But the roasters who who absorbs that? Yep. Roasters, cafe owners, you know, our, our coffee machines come from Italy. That mm. doesn't come without cost. That's mm. changed a lot. Mm-hmm. Where does that money absorb? It, it eventually, gets to the consumer. Mm. But if they're kicking back, someone loses out, and it's generally the workers. Yep. Whether it's at farm. On the floor, on the ground here in Melbourne and Sydney, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's brutal, and it's it has to change. But how do we change it?
0: <laughs> I think we'll get into that later in the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it back to this amazing coffee, uh, amazing brand that you're a part of. Yes. Um, when I do a lot of consultancy and and we talk about different pieces of equipment in the venue, like we'll think about price point in regards with things like fridges and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Like most, most clients are pretty movable on certain pieces of equipment in mm-hmm. order to save some money on a fit out. But when you go with coffee machines, like it's Lama Zocco or it's nothing, right? Like why – how has that been built? How has that want and desire for for your brand to be the only brand that people put into their cafes?
1: Um, it's, it's really flattering to hear that always because it's something we constantly try to say – People have a choice every mm. time. So mm. how do we make them make Lomazoko the first on their list? Yeah. Um, I remember working for Chris Dillon at Coffee Supreme years ago and he said to me, always behave like you're the second, always be the second cab on the rank. Mm. Like always be ready to be the next person, even if you're not the first choice. And I yeah. think that's what we're constantly doing. Right. So it's always flattering to hear people say that. I was sort of ruminating on this question when you sent it through, and I think one of the big things and one of the reasons I really loved Lomazoko when I got into it was that we designed with baristas and technicians in mind. Mm. And so often you'll see, you know, the barista side of things making the coffee. It's, we've tried to make it as simple as possible. The flow, the process is really, really great for them to use, but also to service Because that's the side you don't see. Those machines need to keep running, you know? Mm. And the technicians, we have one of the strongest technical communities in the world, in Australia, which is huge. Mm. Um, I'm super, always super proud, always happy to advocate for them because in America they're very lacking. I think there was like one guy servicing all of LA about five years ago. And if he didn't turn up, your coffee machine didn't get fixed for all of LA. That's craziness to me. <laughs> but here there's like competing companies and it's like if you don't do the service as quick as you can, as fast as you can with a smile on your face, there's someone behind them to do that for you mm. and just, as, just as well. Mm. So we have technicians on our side by training them, by providing really good part service, all those things. So it's sort of a double barreled thing. It's behind the scenes as well as the front.
3: Mm.
1: I don't know if consumers necessarily know Lamazocco as well as... Hospitality kids, mm. and that's something we're working on with Lamazocco Home. Yeah, how right. to take translate that into that sort of home market? How do we get people to see it and go, "Oh, I want that for my house. Mm. I can have that for my house." And also recognizing that it's a Lamazocco machine. Yeah, but yeah,
0: are you just on the start? Are you just <laughs> <laughs> sorry cut you off? Are you just on the start of that journey with the Lamazocco at home because it's a very like the brand is a very stylized brand. Like they're beautiful <laughs> pieces of machinery. Like, if you sort of just started that process of getting people to want it at home as well?
1: Well, we have start, just started it in terms of, like, longevity of La Mazzocca as a brand, like, mm. given we're around since 1927, so yeah. 95 years. Um, but the home machine has been around since 2015. Um, we – I would also consider that home machine the linear mini semi-commercial. That can – you've got that on the bench here at Worksmith. That mm. can make 100 cups an hour. Mm. That's not really a home machine, Mm, right? No. It's over-specced. Yes. Um, And so you have to sort of understand you're looking for the elite espresso machine for home. Mm -hmm. There are always machines that will cost more and do more in terms of, you know, but they need efficient, like proper plumbing and electrical and things like that. That's just Mm. 10 amp into a thing. But relatively new for us, but one of the big reasons we got through the pandemic pretty unscathed as a business because we had a pretty developed home market. So that transition, when people weren't making coffee at home, weren't be able to go into their local cafe, they started Googling, can't travel, got money, still got my job. Mm. don't want to renovate the bathroom because the tradies aren't available. Maybe I could buy a coffee machine because I'm missing my flat white. Mm. So at, globally, every time a country would shut down, one of our other countries was open. So we've got branch offices in like 10 countries now. Right. So when China was closed down, Australia was still operating because we had to, um, you know, we sort of kept the virus out for a while before we even did the lockdown. So we did mm-hmm. that first one. Mm-hmm. Then it sort of circled around and then China was open while we were in lockdown. Mm-hmm. And similarly, so us home sales really floated mm-hmm. the business mm-hmm. during the pandemic. So mm-hmm. it's new to the market, it's new to the consumer, but thankfully we've got that brand, that Lamazocco brand and the hospitality industry alone to to float the interest already but we want to dig deeper and sort of become more of that household name Mm. how do we get known as well as say your DeLonghi's or your sort of you know your Brevils, things like that how do we do that we're still relatively small in comparison to those companies Mm. don't have that marketing spend how do how do we leverage the industry knowledge into that consumer mindset so that's a big challenge for us at the moment
0: yeah for sure Who do you see a customer for the at-home market in comparison to something like DeLonghi or something like, you know, the Breville market? Do you see them as a different kind of Um,
1: customer? Same customer, but further along on their journey. Okay. So, like, a a purchase process for one of our home machines is between one to five years, the purchase cycle. Okay. Once they're aware of us, there's not many people that will just go, oh, yeah, a $9,000 machine. (laughs) Push play on that one. Like <laughs> yeah, there's it's a people lot of that research. can. Yeah, 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 great and good on them. Mm. Like finding out about it and buying it the next day, or just add to cart. Not many people are like that though. They want to touch it, they want to feel it, they want to see it. Often they'll be frustrated with the shortcomings of, say, the steam wand,
3: mm.
1: or the bits of the bits that break. The fact that when they look at a training video online, the espresso is not pouring the same
0: mm. because the
1: internals aren't up to their capabilities, and so mm. then they'll start researching better pumps or better steam wands and start coming across those deeper coffee chats between the, the nerdier people of us that talk about coffee on the internet yes. um, and find out about our brand that way. And then I think whenever I come to a, a PR company or like management consulting or banks, we'll introduce ourselves. They'll be like, I've never heard of you guys. Mm. Then the next meeting we have, they're like, oh my God, you're everywhere.
0: Right. So So it's visibility and then they see it everywhere. Once it's
1: like, talk about a brown car, then Mm -hmm. you see five brown cars that you (laughs) haven't seen a brown car before in your (laughs) life. So (laughs) trying to get our name into their minds because again, we don't have that, having designed for baristas and technicians, we've got quite a range of models Mm. and we've been around for 95 years. That the shape isn't iconic. It doesn't look like a Coke can.
0: Yeah, right. The
1: logo doesn't look the same too. It changes. Yeah. So we've got that, inconsistency we've also got this thing about customizing in australia where often people will even take our name off the machine wow to the trained eye you know the shape of a linear classic and people use just that outline for advertising sometimes but we know that's our machine Mm. but the average consumer doesn't so that's sort of our challenge Mm. um but it's an exciting one and i think that's what makes us all turn up to work every day going like how do we it's just such a huge and exciting market, and it's endless. Yeah, if you for sure. can get sure. into it, you know.
0: How do you, how do you feel about venues taking your name off the machine? Um,
1: well, I don't. I don't like it when people put. So there's a real thing we've got like. Um, probably because I know Pierre Obambi, the son of the founders, who just passed away, mm. just during COVID. Actually, not of COVID, but it was super super disappointing and really upsetting for all of us. But mm. he was the last of the family name for the Bambi brothers who founded Lomazocco. Yeah, right. But he had a big thing about, you know, the curved edges of a curved machine mm-hmm. had a curved logo,
0: mm. but the square
1: machines had square logos. And when I see someone put a curved logo onto one of our square machines, it's still our brand, but it's wrong. Yeah, I understand. And, like, it's like seeing a, a graphic design rule broken, you know? Like, mm-hmm. to me, that's, that's how I feel about it. So... Mm. It's I sort of had a go at it, not a go but like a conversation with our sales director and from Italy and I was like, What do you think, Lorenzo? Like why how do you feel about this? And he said, Well, they own the machine, it's theirs, they can do whatever they like with it. And I think that changed my mind because it is it's personalization, it's customization, it's owning your consumers' experience, owning your experience as an operator. Mm. So we support that. But yeah, obviously I'd want everything to look classic as it should. Yeah. And if you want to customize it, I want you to put the right logo in the right place. But I don't I also have red hair and I know that most people choose not to do that to their hair. So (laughs) you do you do what you want with your product or your your experience, I guess.
0: Are you using anything like great relationships that you have with the Cafe Network in order to try and sell the at home? product as well and therefore sell their beans that they may be roasting, mm-hmm. roasting themselves like is that something you want to go down or are you trying to keep them separate
1: it's so it's quite hard because we we actually don't sell to cafes we sell business to business so oh. we sell to roasters right so your all presses campos coffee supreme single origin seven miles you know like these mm-hmm. big big roasters around australia veneziano Axel. Mm-hmm. But um, they all have cafes, so whether they have a retail space or not. But we don't often have that direct relationship. We host events. We do things to keep the groundswell of enthusiasm for Lamazoko with the baristas, with the new cafe owners. Mm-hmm. We want to be known to them, but we can't sell direct to them. Yep. Um, yes is the short answer, but we do that through our roaster networks. They have a larger following. They've got the cafes as an already, you know, captive audience. Mm-hmm. What I often say to our roasters is steal our customers' we're selling the machine, but we're not selling beans. Mm. What can we do together so that you get, because they'll they'll get an ongoing spend Mm -hmm. that can equal or exceed the spend that we have on the coffee machine over time if they gain that loyalty. So there's often that challenge back to them and then we work together on how do we actively engage the audiences in their local areas. Mm. Which is quite cool. And the fact that they're 10 amps and have little internal reservoirs, they can pop up. We can take them anywhere without having to get generators. Yeah, for sure. Which is quite cool. Yeah, okay. Just a flexibility. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) It's a can of worms. Yes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, We just had mice a couple of weeks ago here in Mm -hmm. Melbourne. Um, I really want to get your take on automation Mm -hmm. and where you think automation is going to go in the cafe industry now that we're finding it so hard to find, you know, really good quality brewsters across the country. It's obviously a worldwide problem. Like, how do you think that's going to affect, how do you think automation is going to affect what you guys are doing currently at the moment?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, well, we just launched a milk machine. So mm-hmm. great timing for that. And mm-hmm. it has had two pretty, pretty good success. There's always been milk machines in the market. Our one doesn't have internal pipes that have milk in them. Yep. Which coming from a dairy farming area, Milk freaks me out in many ways. (laughs) Cow's milk's particularly, because there's a lot going on in it. So Mm. this one is basically you can use, it's just a steam wand extension. Mm -hmm. Um, Automation. When I moved to Melbourne in 2007, everyone did manual shots. Mm. Manual grinders, no scales. It was eye, it was taste, it was flavor. It was feeling the machine, Mm. which is a very old school. Barista means bartender. Mm. They used to service the machines and dial them in and do everything, the the bartenders in Italy. So that was like a a very respected role to be a barista. Yeah, right. Um, So, and then as I think Matt Perger from St. Ali back in the day, who's a competition guy, advocated for volumetrics, which is the preset amount of water that goes through the coffee and then stops. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Advocated for that. Machines were always capable of it, but everyone was like, oh, you're not a specialty coffee barista if you push the button. Mm -hmm. In my lifetime, in coffee in Melbourne... It's gone from completely manual everything to preset dosed grinders, tamping machines that tamp for you, buttons that just pre dispense the water, like pre dosed coffee to pour into the grinder to do that. You know, mm-hmm. like everything's become very automated in that respect, mm. milk as well. Um, what that means, and what I sort of was talking to customers when they were coming up to the stand and wanting to look at the Wally, which is the name of it, mm-hmm. um, was there's t shirts we have at the time with Wally. It replaces an employee right Mm. so it replaces the wage it gives you consistent milk at a set temperature at a set foam, but it doesn't replace them in terms of we want to take the people out of it what it means is they can focus on the latte art which a machine can't do Mm. and well for now anyway and also just engaging with that customer talking to them about the coffee asking about their day so i was talking about when i moved here when i was at saint ali I sat at that machine with my head down making coffee for eight hours a day, right? Mm I remember people coming up to me like five years later going, you made me my coffee every single day. And I'm like, I've never seen your face. (laughs) Never. Because I was head down just like, holy shit, there's so much to do. Like Mm. everything was just so Mm. dialed in and you had to be, your face had to be down. Mm. I think it gives people an opportunity to look up, come out of that, smile, be the person behind the coffee as opposed to, just the sort of the, the person that's making the machines work together. Mm. You know, it's actually more of that social interaction. So I think automation's super important for the coffee industry and especially with RSI. You know, we just invented a machine about, I want to say it was three years ago, 2019, um, the KB90, which is a straight-in portafilter. So mm-hmm. you push it in without using your wrist to the gasket. Oh, wow. It just goes straight in and then lift and it clicks into place. It's a hydraulic system. Right. It's epic. It reduces the strain on the barista's wrist by 12 times. Wow. Which was proven through a sort of a study we did with the University of Milan. Yep. Um, incredible. And a lot of the cafes in Melbourne have adopted that. So St. Ali used them. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the Axel accounts do, most of Veneziano, because their baristas are making 120 kilos of coffee a day, so 60 cups to a kilo. Yeah. That wrenching motion. I I do that now and parts of my wrist and my shoulder hurt Mm. from years of doing it. Mm -hmm. And so doing that means you've got more longevity with your baristas. And again, less manual labor for the same effect. Mm. So I think we're not seeing people as expendable like we used to. Sure. And we need to develop them a bit more. And I think automation helps to do that and and automate the right things so that the consumer experience becomes better.
0: How far do you think it will go? Do you think you'll see a robot? (laughs) Working a Zocca machine in five um, years, ten years' time?
1: I guess looking at supermarkets, mm. you know, you can go through and not speak to a person at all. But then I see people that just get so frustrated. There was a woman at the auto checkout the other day that was just sighing and having this big drama every time she made a mistake. And it's generally that you. It's not the computer. Yeah. There are some people that just cannot get behind machines Yeah. until they're forced into it. So I mm. think there's that element of... Handmade. I think, you know, even looking at Michael and the the guys at Falco, you know, bakeries, people like to go to bakeries. You can go to a supermarket and get a loaf of bread that's pre-sliced, that's consistent and does what it does. Or you can go and get something that looks slightly different, tastes slightly different, but it's handmade, handcrafted. You're paying for the experience. I think that will always be there. But I think you might see more of that sort of, I'd like to think that saying that, you know, the success of the 7-Eleven $1 coffee, getting a tattoo recently and they're like, you know, I don't mind the 7-Eleven. I was like, that's cool. Like, that's fine. That's a dollar. I was like, I'm paying for your labour now to put ink on my skin, right? Yep. Think about the fact that two, two beans come in a cherry. Mm. 60 of those beans, a minimum, I'm sorry, about 120, 180 of those beans goes into a cup of coffee. Some hands needed to do that to bring, to get them out of those cherries, to then bring them to onto, on, into bags to go on a boat to come here to get turned brown to get in a bag, to come out here, to then do that. I was like, that dollar, someone's losing out, and it's not you. Yep. So who's losing out? Mm. So it's being making the consumer more aware of that. So if we are going to have those automated experiences, making that a way better price. So I'd like to see probably a more specialty version of that, and then still having those boutique special barista experiences that coffee roasteries, cafes. I don't think we're ever going to lose that local corner cafe. Yeah. I because, I don't know, I think a few years ago I made that um, change between, like, church and, and town halls being a meeting place. This mm. comes from being in a small town mm-hmm. to cafes.
3: Mm. Yep. You run
1: into, you know, little Billy's mum that you saw at the soccer game and you just want to have a chat about your kids or whatever. Yep. Whereas you would usually do that out the front of church in 1960s yep. Australia. Yeah, That's changed. And I think people seek that personal experience, yeah. especially post-COVID. I think the there was benefits of going completely digital, but there mm. was a lot of drawbacks in terms of social interaction and I think people will hold dear to that. Mm. And I think we should, we're should we very well placed to be a part of both of those journeys yeah. as a brand, which is exciting. I think both are super exciting.
0: Mm. Totally agree. Let's talk about a marketing standpoint. Mm. How do you evolve as a person who's in marketing a brand that has so much heritage and make it, move and see into the future and and bring customers along the journey with that as well. Is that is that tricky?
1: Yeah, I think what having that history helps us lean on that history to then help us look to the future. I mm. think to think that you're reinventing the wheel every time is silly and I think many people look, but looking to the past to look to the future is super important. There's, like, life is cyclical, you know hospitality, experience, social interaction, it's all cyclical. So how do we grow? And I think we also look at like the products we're selling. So I'm now marketing manager for four brands for Lamazoco. Wow. So Lomazocco Commercial, the big coffee machines that you see. Lomazocco Home, so our little domestic machines. Modbar, which is a fully... Um, modular brew tap system. So you can just get a brew tap. It looks like a beer tap, but it makes espresso. Mm-hmm. You can get a steam and you can get a pour over tap. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can, like if you've ever been to industry beans, have been to the new site mm-hmm. in Fitzroy, that's yes. completely mod bar. Yep. So there's no traditional espresso machine. It's all on display. You're showing off the art and the skill between behind making an espresso, which is harking back to that. People want to go to that handcrafted boutique experience and, yep. um, And then we have the Wally, which is the automated milk, you know. Um, We're diversifying in that. We also have just launched a, to lean to our heritage but look to the future. Um, Our old factory in Italy closed in the 80s and we moved to, um, so it's on the hills just heading out of of Florence. um, In a little village called Pian di San Bartolo. Um, And then our actual factory at the moment is in Scarparia, which is about 15 minutes further up the hill. Mm -hmm. It's awful. You have to drive through all those Renaissance um, (laughs) heritage-protected hills. And there's all these old men harvesting grapes and olives and things. It's a really terrible (laughs) time. But (laughs) at our little old factory, um, the brothers built it in the 50s. And it's actually heritage-protected because of how beautiful it is. So it's got this amazing curved ceiling. It's like an arch. And it has windows the entire length of it. And it was so that the guys when they were building used natural light. Mm. not needing heaps of electrical light, right? So mm-hmm. it was sort of a nicer experience as a factory worker. We've since turned that into a place called Academia del Café Espresso. So Academia is where David, the statue, is in Florence. So it's like a, an academy of the arts. We've made it an academy of coffee. We've opened that to the public just post-COVID. Um, there's a fully operational 1970s espresso bar that we found in a cafe in the hills in Florence, and we bought it in its entirety, like docket rails, everything from this wow. woman whose dad put it in there in the 70s and took it out operational, put it in. So we've got an old 1970s machine there. You walk in, you experience that. You then walk through the history of our brand. Yeah, there's, there's coffee roasters. There's a, the largest indoor coffee plantation in Europe we've built in there as well. Um, so we're growing our own coffee. Um, it's underneath, we've got Officina Fratelli Bambi, which is the guys that are building machines the way we traditionally built them in the 1950s. Mm. So all by hand, hand, hand curved, everything. Those are special machines that we do, but it's another brand we look after (laughs) by the by, but, um, introducing new people to the world of coffee. So you're going to Florence, you're looking at all the art, you're eating, you're doing things like that. Italy is the birthplace of espresso. Where do I go to learn about that? We're saying, come to us. So we're trying to engage people in that. We're working with World Coffee Research about sustainability for coffee so that people, when they come there, they've come to Florence for the arts, for the food. All of a sudden, they're in this place where they're learning all about espresso and they take that knowledge back to their hometown Mm. and hopefully start to think differently about how much they're paying for a cup, things like that. So I guess that's how we're, diversifying and looking at different ways to influence. So, yes, we have the strong cafe market, but there's so many more places that we can make a difference and a lot of that is to do with the farmers, the growers, and educating the end consumer on paying more, but also how to improve their coffee experience when they go out at home, things like that. Mm. Demand more from their local suppliers as well.
0: Yeah, because yeah. I guess that whole experience in looking after everyone in that chain is is really just... Education to the end consumer, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're going to your local cafe and all of a sudden the price has gone up from 450 to $5, yep. which is still too cheap. 100%. Um, <laughs> if we really care about the grower, that is way too cheap. It, sh-
1: it should be 10 bucks minimum. And I know that make people just go, what? But it's, it's true.
0: Yes. 100%, <laughs> right? But I kind of feel like La Mazocco is, is sort of treating that as an education piece to, mm-hmm. to say, hey, consumer, like this is the actual process mm-hmm. here like this is you know, have more respect for what's happening in a cafe environment because we actually need to move the dial up 100% you know having we, three coffees a day is not a smart thing to do
1: well we could <laughs> blindly sell machines and be like this is great la 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 bye yeah. bye bye, sell 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 Yeah. but where's the longevity there where's mm. the sustainability where's the industry that we love and we has helped us grow that's cafes. Yep. So with that automation, with like not paying enough, so it's becoming unsustainable, you know? Yeah. When I was here in 2007, people selling caf- cafes, they'd sell them for close to a million dollars. You cannot sell a business for that anymore and they're not making anywhere near as much money yep. as an operator. It is day-to-day, week-to-week to mm-hmm. pay the wages. Yep. So it's in our best interest to make sure that we're really protecting them, we're looking after them. A lot of the stuff we did during lockdown was just, Tell on, online we did a lot of things around log in and just like comment and tag your local cafe and tell them how much it means to you to go and get a copy there at the moment. Mm. And then we'll send them a merch pack.
0: Yeah, and right. And so we just, cool.
1: our, our accounts were flooded with just people thanking their local cafe, their local barista, and like the, the back and forth on that was so buoying in terms of like the people are what makes this industry great. And that goes right back to those growers. We actually are part owners of a farm wow. in Tanzania, with um, Marl Koenig and Probat, which is pretty great. We've sort of done a lot of development there in terms of fresh water, schools, things like that. But we're really understanding of the entire process and doing that work with World Coffee Research, working really closely with roasters, working closely with green bean buyers, you know, like all those things to understand the pressure points, because we are one of those pressure points. Coffee machines don't get cheaper. Yeah. (laughs) We still have to pay wages and produce machines and ship them around the world, you know? Like, how do we do better as an advocate for other people in the industry to make sure that they're not getting left behind Mm -hmm. so that our business can still grow too? It's not, I'd like to say it's altruistic, but it's it's smart business practice, right? Yeah. As well as being considerate and caring. Mm -hmm. We also want our business to be successful too. And to do that, we need to look after other people and help them build their businesses up. And it seems so makes so much sense but a lot of people forget that part especially when they're successful and i think that's what makes lamazoko the brand that i've always wanted to work with i always said i was a little punk when i was a teenager and i was like i'll never do marketing it's so evil but i'm like (laughs) i do it when it's something i believe in yeah and i believe in the product and i believe in the messaging and i believe in making sure that we're making the industry a better place Mm. for being part of it yeah
0: yeah i feel i feel like you're doing much more of a branding exercise that just happens to be part of marketing because I think you're telling a really great story. Hmm. And it's been great to learn about that today. My my last question before I let you go, and I want to invite you back next year if we can because I think there's a lot more to tell around your story (laughs) and your thoughts. And I know a lot of people are going to reach out to to me after this and want you to come back next year. Yeah, cool. What are you feeling positive about for the industry moving forward now?
1: I guess – Harking back to our sort of darker conversation at the mm. start and, you know, like the the challenges that we've had in, in growth and diversity and things like that, I really want to see that diversity grow yep. for our brand but also for every brand. To see the voices of the growers heard loud and proud just at the Barista Championships just recently, one of the MCs stood up and just said, none of us will be here without the growers. Can all the farmers just in the audience stand up? And there was like three guys stood up and everyone was just like, yeah, because they don't have money, they're not getting of the course. money. They're not the ones getting the dollars. Like, and especially if no one's considering where they're buying their coffee from, exactly back to the tattoo guy, you don't buy a dollar coffee, you don't buy the same three dollars fifty cup of coffee and expect to see those people rewarded. And no. it's so I'm, I made friends with a Guatemalan farmer years ago, and she's an award-winning farmer and she lives and works on this farm in Guatemala, and It's it's third generation family and. She's such an incredible woman, but she is out there every day on that farm with her son on her back <laughs> working, you know, and her family owns this farm and they're not wealthy people. And it's, it's up to us to, you know, we're not, we see the pinch at the cafe owner side, but we see the pinch in our wallet, all those things. Think of that magnified times 10 and the fact that a bloody bug could wipe out your income. Yep for the year, if not longer, and especially with climate change. So again, that's a big part of what we're doing at academia. Mm. How do we, you know, work on climate change for coffee? And that isn't every single action we take, but I don't know. Yeah, it's, I'm most excited about people wising up to spending more, um, working harder on advocating for different voices to be heard in every, in every, Industry, but particularly in coffee, mm. um, and really a lot more about the farmers and talking. And, and we talk really well. You know, when you go to a cafe, you generally hear about the provenance of the beans, mm-hmm. but asking a bit more questions like there are a couple of roasters in Melbourne, Seven Seeds and Rumble Coffee, who do incredible work on transparency. Yep. They'll tell you exactly how much they paid for that coffee to the farmer. Wow. Those are the questions we should be asking as a consumer, and those are the things that excite me because we need to open up conversation around where we're spending money and where that money is flowing to and making sure it's not getting lost in those, you know, pockets of people that have had their pockets lined for a long time, yep. exposing that stuff. So I'm excited for that. Um, I'm excited to see Lamazoka grow without the Bambi family name. Yeah. Um, Piero is and always will be a hero of mine. Um, regardless of whether he's around or not. he. Whenever I see something like that curved thing on a, on a straight machine, I'm mm. like, oh, he'd hate that. And so I think making sure that we're keeping the, the, the aesthetic of that alive, but also the, the inclusiveness, he would also wel- he would welcome anyone from anyone anywhere around the world into the factory and make them a coffee. And I think making sure that we're being inclusive and supportive of anyone, wherever they are on their coffee journey, whether they're just finding us as a home consumer, to a roaster purchasing machines, to a farmer who has just tried an espresso for the first time of their own coffee, Mm. because generally they're doing like a pot on the stove. So it's being a sort of an ambassador for that is something that's super exciting to me as well. Just, yeah, holding that flag high, I guess.
0: I've learned a lot today. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Um, if people don't know about La Mazzucca and they want to find out some more information, what's the best place to go turn to?
1: Finding out about what we're up to at the moment is just jump on our Instagram, so La Mazzucca AU, or La Mazzucca Home AU if you're looking for the home side, and also really I encourage you to get onto Academia Del Cafe Espresso and just see what really is the future to me of of, of La Mazzucca.
0: Awesome. Yeah. It's going to be linked up in the show notes of this podcast. Awesome. Anita, thanks so much for your time.
1: Thank you very much.
0: <laughs> Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of Principle of Hospitality. I hope you really enjoyed that episode. Please comment, like, and share this podcast with your friends in the industry. We're making this content with the industry in mind, so we'd really appreciate you sharing it along, your reviews, giving it a five star. We'd really, really appreciate it. And if you don't know us at Poe, Sash, my co founder, has a design business called Principle Design, and it's one of the best design agencies in Australia. So if you're looking for anything around strategy, branding, digital design, wayfinding and graphic design, you can find them at principledesign.com.au and myself at Open Pantry Consulting for anything to do with systems and processes to make your business run even more smoothly. We also have a new onboarding and training brand called 42 Days. You can check them out at 42days.co. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode and until next time, stay safe everyone. Have you ever considered what makes a brand successful? How one brand supersedes another in the hospitality landscape? Well, it's never a coincidence. It's always a product of well thought out branding strategy that captures the essence of your story. That's why principal design is making brands happen in cafes, restaurants, bars, and venues by crafting experiences that gives customers a reason to choose you. They are raising the standard of our industry and helping venues realize that strong brand presence is the key that unlocks all the good stuff like increased full traffic, higher engagement and overall happy customers. Branding ultimately becomes the face that engages your audience, delights them at every moment of their dining experience and eventually earns their loyalty. Because you're part of the PO community, we'd love to help you kickstart your brand journey. For a limited time only, Principal Design is offering free strategy sessions for our listeners. So jump over to the bio in the podcast description and book your time slot.